0: Welcome to the Altmetric Podcast, where we bring you the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. I'm your host, Lucy Goodchild. Have you had a cup of coffee today? If you have, you might be benefiting beyond the buzz, according to a review of research across a range of fields. I spoke to the lead author about the apparent health benefits of coffee and why we're so interested in hearing about them. If you've got a coffee habit, you might have wondered if it's doing you any harm. There have been concerns about its health impacts, but there has also been a lot of research showing the benefits of drinking coffee. A review in the New England Journal of Medicine gained traction online recently, sharing the message that drinking coffee is associated with health benefits as well as risks. The lead author of the review, Professor Rob Van Damme from the NUS Saw Swee Hock School of Public Health in Singapore, has been working on the health effects of coffee for 15 years and was surprised by the breadth of benefits he uncovered for the review. In this episode, Professor Van Damme tells us about the review and shares his tip for engaging the public. Thanks ever so much for joining me, firstly.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is a big topic. Why did you decide to review it?
1: Well, actually, I've been working on coffee and its health effects since, I think, 2002. So uh, quite a long time. I was not specifically interested in coffee or caffeine. I was interested in different dietary determinants of diabetes. Uh, so not so much what people should be eating when they have diabetes, but more what can potentially help preventing diabetes. And not so much so much was known about it. So I was looking at some minerals like magnesium and potassium that could play a role. And I was quite surprised that coffee is quite a big source of that in the population I was looking at in the U.S. Uh, and then I looked more into the literature on what, what is in coffee uh, and the complexity of coffee. Because first, when we think of coffee, we mainly think of Caffeine, it's like a vehicle for caffeine, but it has hundreds of different plant compounds. So I got fascinated about it and thought more about uh, what could be the health effects of these compounds beyond just caffeine. We had quite a surprising finding. It's actually from the Netherlands where people, as you know, drink a lot of coffee. And we saw that uh, people drinking more coffee had a lower risk of diabetes and not a little bit, uh, really like 50% lower risk of diabetes for people drinking seven or more cups a day versus people with low consumption and i published that but very few people believed that because at that time people generally thought coffee as, as a relatively unhealthy beverage something that fits an unhealthy lifestyle with sleeping less and uh, smoking a lot drinking more alcohol so people were surprised but then interestingly all across the world people confirmed that in uh, asia in southern europe and us Also finding that both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee had a very similar uh, association. So suggesting it may not be the caffeine, but other components of coffee. So then over the years, uh, me, myself and and colleagues uh, have looked at other health outcomes, like different types of cancer, cardiovascular disease, even overall mortality. And also the flip side of it, what kind of effect can caffeine and coffee have in pregnancy? That's more towards the detrimental effects. So this review was simply uh, kind of inspired by uh, studying it for 50 years or so and wanting it, putting it together for a broader audience. So the journal is read by a lot of physicians and uh, reaches the public well to just put it all together in kind of a new, nuanced overview of what are some of the detrimental but also beneficial effects of coffee. Because it can be confusing for people. Sometimes they hear something positive, something negative. So we thought it would be useful to put it together to give a comprehensive overview.
0: So how did you approach the review?
1: Well, actually, we were uh, invited by the journal to do the review uh, by New England Journal of Medicine. The senior author, Walter Willard, was invited. And then he asked us, uh, do we want to participate? And uh, he's a busy man, so I volunteered to take the lead on writing it. So you would think that if you're invited to write for the journal, that uh, would be a relatively easy uh, review process. But it really isn't. So we got, I think, four or five rounds of reviews. And every time we got different types of reviews (laughs) to do quite a bit of rewriting. But I think that really improved the paper to make it quite clear for people from different disciplines.
0: And did you face any challenges?
1: No. Some of the challenges is just the sheer amount of different fields that it covers. Because it's not only about chronic diseases like cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes that I'm quite comfortable with. But there's also the acute effect on mental performance and vigilance. And there's reports from the military, how caffeine helps uh, people in the military stay awake and and fulfill their missions. So I had to read in a lot of literature that I was not so familiar with uh, in quite different fields. There's also quite a bit of uh, physiology and metabolism involved about how caffeine is differently metabolized in different people. It was really not uh, just writing up what I already knew. I did have to study and explore different fields.
0: Did anything really surprise you?
1: One of the things that struck me is that uh, more from the fields that I was not so familiar with. So one thing was that there's really some quite good evidence that it does help alertness. It does help people's concentration, particularly with relatively boring tasks. So it's not always like the most creative task, but, uh, you know, driving at night or flying a plane or, that it does help with these types of tasks to keep people alert and to make them more productive. So that, that's one side that I was not so familiar with. And another side that the, I was quite struck by is how a lot of beneficial effects seem to go through the liver. So it seems to protect against liver cirrhosis and liver cancer, other liver conditions, and perhaps also some of the effects on diabetes, maybe through improving glucose metabolism in the liver. So I was quite struck by how a lot of these beneficial effects seem to Converge to that organ. So these were some surprising things for me.
0: So you mentioned diabetes already, but what were your main findings?
1: So for diabetes, it was that there's a very strong consistency across the world for different prospective cohort studies that indeed drinking more coffee is associated with a lower risk of diabetes. As I said, the same for caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee. Also, if you, if you use a different approach and use kind of biomarkers for coffee, you see a similar effect. So that's quite consistent. There's some studies as well uh, showing short-term experimental benefits in humans, short-term experimental studies, as well as in uh, in animal studies. The picture is quite consistent, but it's very hard to pinpoint the specific mechanism or the specific components of coffee that may be beneficial. So I think that step is always hard. If we see something in epidemiology and it seems to be beneficial, it's quite hard to Kind of try to understand what happens in the body and experimentally try to figure out what's going on, and I think that's because a lot of these effects of drinking coffee, for example, people do it for for many decades, so maybe that these benefits accumulate over a long time, uh, which is very hard to replicate in an experimental setting. So there's some methodological challenges to it, but I think overall we can conclude it's there's probably benefits for diabetes, although what we always say is that uh, it's not. The only thing you can do, uh, it, it's not like a golden bullet to prevent diabetes, treatment. it would be so easy, uh, not many people would have diabetes. So more important things, are, of course, staying active and managing people's weight. But I guess, uh, yeah, the, the main story we've, we've been telling over time is that from a time where people thought, oh, coffee is a detrimental beverage, and even though I like it, I should try to avoid it or cut down on my consumption. Uh, I think we can now fairly say that if you're not pregnant or don't have specific health conditions, that it's fine to drink coffee. It can be quite a a healthy beverage, as long as you don't put in too much cream and sugar, uh, as part of a healthy lifestyle. But we're not going that far to say people should start drinking coffee, even if they don't like it, because there's other perfectly healthy beverages like tea that are alternatives.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned pregnancy, and obviously there are some cases where it's not so healthy.
1: Yeah, so in pregnancy, it seems really quite tricky to drink, uh, to use caffeine and coffee, at least in larger amounts. And it does make sense from a physiological perspective, because what happens during pregnancy is that the woman's uh, caffeine metabolism goes down. So but in the third trimester, it takes like more than half a day. It can take up to 18 hours to metabolize half of the caffeine. So it just keeps circulating in your blood, even if you have uh, two cups of coffee per day or so. And the other thing is that the fetus is also very bad at metabolizing caffeine. It doesn't yet have these enzymes to efficiently metabolize them. Uh, And we know that that the caffeine crosses the the placenta. Uh, So it is possible that if people drink a lot of coffee, that this caffeine really accumulates in the baby. And it may construct construct some of the blood vessels and slow growth of the baby. And in some cases, even increase the risk of miscarriage. That's quite a serious issue. And it's, of course, uh, feels a bit bad to tell pregnant women yet another thing that they can't do or that's uh, detrimental for them. Uh, it's hard enough of a period. But I think that's maybe the one time in life where it's, it's good to cut down on your coffee consumption or switch to decaffeinated coffee or, or kind of limit it uh, for that period of time.
0: It's interesting. I, I can remember feeling physically unable to drink caffeine, actually.
1: Yeah, that is actually, that was one of the hypotheses being nauseous in the first trimester of pregnancy is actually a a good sign. It's associated with with a good healthy development of the fetus. So the hypothesis was that simply women who get more nauseous and just as an indicator of a healthier pregnancy, then avoid coffee. And that's the reason why coffee consumption is associated with worse uh, pregnancy outcomes. But now there's some other studies that even show that if you take women's uh, coffee consumption before they get pregnant, that already predicts worse outcome as probably a marker of their, their intake during pregnancy. I don't think it's so bad to drink coffee before pregnancy. I think it's more that women who drink a lot of coffee before pregnancy are more likely to continue with during the pregnancy period. I mean, there's not the strongest evidence. It's not like randomized controlled trials, but I think it's the kind of thing they say it's probably prudent to, to cut down on consumption and try to limit it.
0: So you, you've been working on coffee for 15 years. What, can you tell me a little bit about your background?
1: It's, it's not that uh, bad. would get a bit boring over time. <laughs> it's just one of the topics, among many other related to lifestyle and diet and diabetes and other health outcomes. But my background is from uh, Wageningen University. It's in the east of the Netherlands. And it's an agricultural university. And at the time that I studied there, it was actually not very popular because people saw the agriculture as kind of an old-fashioned business, which was very nice because we had small class sizes and quite famous professors in nutrition. So I was actually trained in nutrition physiology, but we also had some training in behavioral sciences, statistics, doing research, and uh, in later years, also epidemiology. So epidemiology is kind of the science of Populations, how do populations stay healthy or how do certain diseases get more common in populations? Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a quite a quantitative, uh, science, rather than a uh, lab science. Uh, so I, I was quite taken by that. I, I was very intrigued by that. And then, uh, my professors worked with people at the Harvard school of public health in Boston. So then I made that move for, for part of my studies to Harvard. Yeah, that was a very good opportunity because it was a very big critical mass of people doing nutritional epidemiology. So combining this population science of uh, epidemiology with nutrition. So I learned a lot there. So I went back and forth and also went there for a period of my PhD. Yeah, so that's how I got into nutrition on the one hand and epidemiology on the other hand.
0: So the news of the review, obviously, you know, coffee is a very popular topic. So the news hit the headlines with... 30 news articles, 3,000 tweets. Do you think the news articles did a good job of showing your findings?
1: Well, that's a good question. I generally don't uh, read the news articles, <laughs> I only read the ones where I'm interviewed and then later uh, they send it to me. And they, they did do quite a good job. Yeah, so as far as I can see, it was quite nuanced. Although people often complain that there's too much uh, kind of sensationalism in the press that's not always been my experience. Particularly in the US, uh, a lot of people are specialized in scientific journalism. And often I feel that the the stories are quite nuanced and quite quite a good reflection of the science.
0: And so how did the publicity start? Did you do anything to get the news out to people?
1: No. So that's interesting, uh, particularly with this article. Neither my colleagues nor I put out a press release or anything like that. We didn't tweet anything. I don't think the New England Journal of Medicine put out a press release. I've always seen because I worked on different topics. Whenever I publish something on coffee, it resonates much more with the public and they're much more fascinated by it than something about, let's say, fruit or uh, rice or whole grains or whatever it is. So I think it's just something that's intriguing for people, something that they enjoy and that they use for their daily booster that may also have beneficial health effects. So it was a bit surprising. So I think it kind of took its own life uh, and it, it tends to take off yeah, when it's about coffee. So we're not so surprised by it. I didn't know if within the COVID epidemic, people would still be interested in something like this. But perhaps, it's, perhaps it works the other way that we were just happy to have some more uh, pleasant news.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how do you deal with the publicity when a news story picks up about your work?
1: Yeah, so that's very interesting. So you would think you would hear a lot about it, but we publish articles, and even if they get a lot of tweets and uh, a lot of news, we hardly ever hear about it. We only have some journalists like you, uh, perhaps a handful of them, who ask the question, sometimes I get an email, but I hardly hear anything from the publicity. Perhaps it's also because I'm a bit uh, isolated here in Singapore. I really have to make a conscious effort to look it up for me to notice it, yeah.
0: What's the coffee culture like in Singapore? Is there one?
1: Actually, yeah. So, you, superficially, you would think oh, Asia is more of a, a tea continent. Uh, but there's a lot of places in Asia that have a very long history of drinking coffee. For example, in, uh, in southern uh, India, people have been drinking coffee since the 1600s or so. Uh, Japan, Japanese are big coffee drinkers. A lot of canned coffee and instant coffee. The Koreans quite drink quite a bit of coffee these days. And in Singapore, also has a specific uh, coffee culture. Uh, like they call it kopi, and they, they kind of bake the, uh, the coffee beans with some margarine and some spices. And then they use a sock method to uh, prepare coffee. So they put it in a big sock and then they pour hot water over it. So they have their very specific uh, coffee culture, where often they have breakfast where they have like a soft boiled egg, their kopi, what they call the coffee, and then some, uh, some toast. So in Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, all countries where people drink coffee, and they actually drink more coffee here than tea. So that's, uh, it's quite fascinating and surprising. Yeah.
0: Just going back to the publicity side of this paper, what role do you think reviews like this have in
1: public engagement with science? I think it's quite useful, yeah. For some papers, we know that they are interesting novel findings for, for other scientists. But they are really things that have to be confirmed and tested, and other people have to take it on and uh, replicate it. And sometimes you just feel like it's not really ready for public consumption, or it would just be confusing and maybe premature. Uh, so, yeah, then generally more happy that it doesn't get it picked up and just kind of first get some replication and more life within the scientific community. So I think this is very useful that... review like that, you can really highlight things that are more established and the things that are less established and also give quite nuanced uh, kind of recommendations for the public or for physicians, uh, so you can put it much more in perspective. So, otherwise it would be like, you would only say, oh, during pregnancy, coffee is bad, or uh, caffeine is good for uh, Parkinson's, or it's good for depression, but you wouldn't get the full picture. So I think it's just a bit more nuanced if you, if you see all its different effects. And um, I think the the journal also does a very good job with a very thorough review process and also quite a bit of guidance from the editors, I think more than many other journals, and some rewriting to make the, the language crystal clear. Uh, so there's really not much ambiguity if people read the review. They really make a big effort to make it very solid and very uh, very clear. So I I think these uh, play a valuable role. There is a bit of movement uh, or a lot of movement nowadays, of course, towards systematic reviews, uh, meta-analysis and systematic reviews. And we've also done a lot of these ourselves, Uh, but often it's more focused on this very specific topic. For example, analyzing all the data on on coffee and diabetes together, but it's harder to give a very comprehensive overview uh, in, in a systematic review. This allowed us to, within a relatively short paper, to cover a lot of the area.
0: What would be your advice to researchers who want to engage the public with their work?
1: Well, I think the first thing uh, is how do you how do you choose a topic? So it's, I don't think you can work on a topic that people are generally not interested in or that there's not much novelty in uh, and then try to make it shine and make people interested in it. I think uh, you have to work on something at the right time that people are interested in, the topics that appeal to people. And then it also, uh, yeah, gets almost automatically gets a bigger audience. Of course, it also depends where you publish. So yeah, some journals have a much bigger reach than, than other journals, uh, which is also fine. I think some, some papers, as I said, they may not need a very big audience, whereas some other papers, they really deserve a bigger audience if you feel like, You have a bigger story to tell that can actually benefit the public in terms of some the daily choices or they can benefit policymakers. and then it's good to have the right topic at the right time the right journal and then i think yeah you can do press releases you can use twitter nowadays you can use uh, things like uh, researchgate so there's different social media platforms to to extend the message but I think you have to have something to work with that people find intrinsically interesting to begin with.
0: That's a really good tip, thanks. And I just wanted to finish by asking you what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, we're working on two different things. So one thing is the we're working more on metabolomics. So it's the science of looking at many small molecules in the in the blood or in the urine. So rather than looking at just a couple of biomarkers, you look at hundreds or thousands of biomarkers, and that's really to get a bit what I was talking about earlier that in epidemiology, we find these associations, we find these links, but it's a bit of a black box. So we have coffee, people drink more, they have a lower risk of diabetes. Well, what's happening in between? So this kind of metabolomics approach, it could give some insights into what molecules are affected, what mechanisms are involved uh, to give a bit more insight into the mechanistical background. And that can be picked up by other experimental studies then as well. So that's one thing we're working on. And we do that now in the context of the Asian diet, because there's a lot we don't know about the Asian diet, the the spices that are being used, specific foods that are used in in much bigger amounts. And we can learn from that to give dietary recommendations within Asian populations, of course, but also there may be some ingredients or some foods uh, that may have some worldwide interest to be adopted uh, with some specific health benefits. The second thing I'm quite fascinated with, and that's that's because I moved a bit across the world and worked in different societies, is the impact that culture has on how we behave. Our food choices, the amount of physical activity we have. I think there has been a lot of focus on uh, the environment, like the food environment, food deserts, how easy it is to be active or to have a healthy lifestyle, which I think is very important. But I think an enormous amount of our behavior our lifestyle choices are kind of automatic and they're related to social norms and cultural norms that we grow up with or that the society around us have so i'm trying to understand that better to also get a bit more insight into how can we change people's eating habits uh, and physical activity habits for the better we do a lot of research on the health effects of lifestyle uh, but that's of course more relevant if people can actually are actually able to adopt these lifestyles and, and then get the health benefits, low risk of diseases, have a healthier long life. So we're trying to understand better what makes people have these behaviours or what makes it easier for them to have these behaviours so we can advise on policies or changing the environment, the social environment in a way that makes people a bit healthier in their lifestyle.
0: There's an awful lot there given how many cultures there are.
1: Yeah, no, there is. And I think a lot of cultures have something to offer. Like, For example, in Dutch culture, It's very hard to live in the Netherlands and not be active to start biking because the infrastructure is there, but everybody does it. It's kind of a norm. So these type of things um, are important. And also Mediterranean countries, people are not traditionally eating very healthily, I think, because they make a conscious effort every day to pick healthy ingredients and to eat things they don't like. But it's a rich culinary culture where people have... Build up something that's healthy and tasty, and it uses local ingredients. So it is a certain culinary culture that uh, that facilitates healthy eating. So that's that's a bit more the kind of thinking I'm working on nowadays. Uh, so that's more the behavioural side.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, your research with us. It's been great talking to you.
1: It was a great pleasure talking with you.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another headline-grabbing study. Curious what sort of attention your research is getting? Find out at altmetric.com. Until next time!